behavior, bitches. Hey guys, it's Liat and Casey. I think before we get started with anything, I just want to give you guys a little bit of update on what's been going on in life. So life over here is we had some rain in Dallas, which is exciting. And I guess it's October now when you're listening. We're that ahead of our shit. So that's a good sign. We've been getting ahead of our shit, which is great. Um, Casey and I are back in our flow working, which is like when we get there, it's like a unstoppable energy, which is very exciting. And we've been working on a lot of new stuff for Study Notes ABA, which I'm excited to announce soon. Maybe when this podcast comes out, it will be out. So we'll, we'll keep you updated. Um, what? Why don't we tell them about the, the retreat we signed up for? Oh my gosh. I'm so excited. Okay. So Liat and I have been working together for like four years now. And the only vacations we've taken together are me coming to Texas and us working. So we- Excuse me. You went on like a suicide tour with me to San Diego. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Yeah, it was true. That was nice. Like like Um, decided divorce. Let's go. It was like stressful for me because I was kind of like your therapist the whole weekend and you were sad and we were- Oh, shut the fuck up. You had like the best fucking time of your life. Like, don't lie. <laughs> I always, I will say one thing about me is that wherever I go, I do make the best out of it. That's one of my qualities. I love alone time. So if you give me a day to go do what I want, I'm going to go hiking. I'm going to get my nails done. I'm going to go to a coffee shop. I'm going to go to a beach that no one can find. I'm going to go to Niagara Falls. Like those are just like, I love. Okay. 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 Those are things you've done, but do not act like you have the shittiest vacation in San Diego with me. That's like. <laughs> yeah. Like legit, she's she's bullshitting. I loved it. It was so much fun. We had the best um, time. Okay, anyways, yeah. But continue. no, we signed up for this um, a women's retreat for women CEOs of um, startup businesses and entrepreneurs. LOL, CEOs. CEOs. That sounds so legit, but <laughs> it know. just basically means you're running a business. Yeah. And there's only they only take eight women, and we're going to Los Cabos, Mexico in November to reignite – um, our passion, our why, and you know, now that we have an amazing team with us, helping us become better leaders and bringing the best to the podcast and just everything that, I mean, we've been on the hamster wheel for a very long time that it's dizzying every single day. Like you're like, we do, I flip hats, what we both do 40 times a day. It's like wild. So it's going to be exciting now that we have a team that supports us and they, we trust them and we love them and we know that they can do all the things we were doing. We're genuinely trying to figure out like how the F were we doing all this stuff by ourselves? I ask you that every day. I'm like, how are we doing this? It makes me sick. (laughs) (laughs) We're pretty But also really proud. Also really proud. But yeah, so it's been, um, it's been a, a good summer to take a break from the podcast, but we're so ready to come back and we have so much exciting things to share. So we hope you guys are ready and thank you for hanging in with us through the break. It means the world to us that you still listen. I looked at our numbers today and I wanted to cry. I'm like, oh my gosh, like our last episode from when we ended before summer was one of the highest listened to podcast. What episode was it? It was with Gil Winch. Oh, no shit. He's so amazing. And I got his book in the mail. Everyone, his book's available. Winning with Underdogs. Um, on Amazon. It's amazing. Go get it. So just thank you. We love you so much. And 
mean it. All your messages mean the world to us. So in that same realm, I haven't checked reviews in a while, um, which is always scary and exciting (laughs) because they're not always great, but we've got some really good ones. So this one came in from Very Happy Smiley. She sounds like right up my alley. Um, The title is Fun, Amazing, and Informative. Aloha from Oahu, Liat and Casey. I absolutely love listening to these ladies on my drives between sessions, exercising or cooking. Every episode is such an eye-opener. And I love how they bring ABA into relatable topics. They are both funny and just incredible to listen to. I also took their 30-day cram last year in 2021 and one and done that beast of an exam. Congratulations. It always feels like I'm just listening to some girlfriends talking and I'm learning so much every show. So thank you so much for all you do for the ABA community. Some beautiful flower and a heart emoji. Well, thank you so much. Very happy smiley. It means the world to us and keeps us going. All right. Congrats on passing. That's a big deal. Yeah. Welcome to the other side. BCBA, baby. All right. It's time, Casey. I know. I'm ready. So we have two guests today, guys. So double the trouble, double the fun. Um, They reached out when I was in Texas last and I did our little pre-interview, get to know, and I love them so much and everything they're doing. This is Liat's first time meeting them. So I'm going to give a little brief intro on both of them and then we'll welcome them to the show. So we have Laura Funderburg, and she has been in the field since 2009. She started as a behavior interventionist, and then she got her BCABA in 2014. So she actually was, in 2011, she found out she had partial agenesis of the corpus callosum, which she'll explain when she comes on. She had a little crisis about it, and she hid it away for a very long time. She started really researching neurodiversity and trauma-informed practice and started coming out more about her own neurodiversity about two years ago. She messaged our second guest, whose name is Brian, out of the blue and started working on developing a neurodiversity-affirming podcast slash CEU series with neurodiverse voices being lifted up through a panel format. So who is Brian? Brian Middleton is a human. I love how he sent this. He's a human who also happens to be of the autism neurotype. He is also a board certified behavior analyst and licensed behavior analyst for the state of Tennessee. Brian worked as a special education teacher for seven years prior to moving to behavior analysis. In December 2018, he started the Bearded Behaviorist social media page as an effort to make ABA education more fun and interesting. I love following that page, by the way. Since then, Brian has been a guest on multiple podcasts. He hosts two podcasts. One's called Oh Behave, and one is the ACT, Natural Podcast. He's currently serving as a member at large for the Open Educational Resources SIG for ABAI, Brian loves behavior analysis as a science and field and is committed to improving the field. Brian is an avid advocate for autism and for bettering the field. All right. Welcome to the show, Laura and Brian. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, I I forgot to send this correction. I'm sorry. I actually have three podcasts now. Uh, There's also the Science and Humane Behavior Podcast, which uh, right now we have two episodes loading uh, in process of being put yeah. up, but it, uh, Stephen Hayes was our first guest. And it's, Shut your mouth. 
all things ethics. Um, oh and the next the next two guests are uh, Shane Spiker, because <laughs> who him. doesn't love Shane? He's oh, he's a man. <laughs> We've got two with him. We're obsessed. He's and, a man. And, and Tyra Sellers. Oh, so. Tyra. oh, my God. This is this is not a light uh, guest list. lineup. <laughs> um, we're, we're going for, uh, having hard conversations about ethics and about being humane behavior analysts. And that's, so Can that's you the repeat, reason for that. Um, repeat the name of that podcast. Science and humane behavior or SciHubX. We'll put that in the show notes. Don't you worry um, guys. It's fun, but th that's not, we're here to talk what we're here to talk about. So, but you know um, what? It's nice to get a background on our guest. So Laura reached out and, I think the title of your email was like super fan something. And I'm like, wait, what? I love getting those. First of all, that means the world. And I'm like, yeah, okay, for sure. I've got to meet her and I met you and you were just a light. So I want you to tell everyone more about you than just that bio I read. Cause there's so much more and they need to hear it from you. Sure. Okay. So I um, was, already so I kind of got into the field kind of the way that everybody does kind of incidentally I um, actually was in the Air Force I did I worked for the Air Force Rescue Coordination Center and there um, we did search and rescue uh, of a lot of times um, autistic individuals or people with dementia or Alzheimer's were the most common um, and my mom was a special education teacher so I already kind of knew that I wanted to work in some realm helping people like I wanted to do a helping profession and so when I got out of the Air Force I went to college and the first job out of college was of course like a nine dollar an hour job mm -hmm. doing direct care for a family who had a child who was on the autism spectrum she handed me um Skinner's verbal behavior and was like here <laughs> we're gonna do this <laughs> and this was like circa 2009 I'd never heard I'd heard of Skinner but I had right. never heard I mean I had never heard of ABA or, or any of that at that point well, that's a great way to start right there that red book yeah so <laughs> red Skinner's verbal behavior that was my introduction to ABA um you know looked up a little bit of stuff on the internet um she brought in someone who was actually going to FIT and getting her BCBA um, as like a behavior consultant. And um, they asked me if I wanted to join. They saw me with the child and, and said that I would be great at doing ABA. So I was like, okay, sure. I don't know what I'm really going to be doing yet. I was like starting my master's in special education and I was also substitute teaching. And, and so I just kind of fell into it. I fell in love with it. Um, and then we moved to the middle of nowhere, Missouri. At the time we were in Virginia and we moved to Missouri and everyone was like, ABA, we don't know what that is. <laughs> so like I lived in a town of 2,500 people. And so I was like, oh my goodness. I've, I was already in FIT. I was already in my coursework. I didn't know what I was going to do. So um, it took about a year before I actually hooked up with a um, with an ABA company and was able to kind of get started again. Um, so it was a long road. And then just, um, you know, not to get too long winded on you um, in the process of getting my um, certification, I was starting to lose feeling in half of my body. And I already have a lot of health 
um, complications. As a matter of fact, like one of the things I loved about both of you is that you guys like have this like perfect, I don't know, like I can see myself in both of you basically. Um, with Leah, it's, it's uh, some of the struggles that you've been through with your health. And also um, with Casey, it's kind of some of the things that you've dealt with with your upbringing um, and like the episode about narcissism. Um, I was in a relationship that was like that. And so anyways, long story short, I was, they thought I had MS. Um, I also have a blood condition. Um, I actually have several blood conditions. I've been off and on of uh, Coumadin. So I've had to give myself blood thinners off and on throughout my life. Um, so I, they thought I had MS and I went and saw a neurologist and I was already doing ABA. I was already working with clients and they're like, yeah, so you don't have MS, but you do have a neurological brain defect, which is their exact words. Bomb drop. Yeah. And I'm like, what? I'm, I'm yeah. 31. I shouldn't be finding this out at 31. <laughs> like, so, so, um, I did, uh, what anyone would do when you're handed some diagnosis like that. And I did a Google search and I immediately like shut my computer was like, no, I'm not going to accept this right now. This is not like, how am I going to help people when I found out that I'm missing 70% of my corpus callosum, which is the neural pathway between your right and your left hemisphere. I had pretty much an identity crisis. I didn't know what to do with it. So I just shelved it and I did what anybody <laughs> who is given a diagnosis and isn't ready to accept it did, I masked and I got really good at masking. Um, I just- Wait, side wouldn't... note, sorry. Does that mean sure. that you had that your entire life? That yeah, 70% was, was missing or like like something mm -hmm. like caused it to, I mean, because I don't really know how it works. No, so funny story. My mom recently told me, yeah, you know, I mean, it was the early 80s. So- ultrasounds were not what they are now. She's like, but they did say there appeared to maybe be something different about your brain, but we didn't think anything of it because you appeared to be, you know, pretty typical. So, you know, <laughs> but what's really interesting about that is I definitely wasn't like I knew even as a kid, there's something different about me than everyone else. And I felt different. And I struggled with a lot of things. I mean, the diagnosis explained my entire life to me, but I just wasn't ready to accept it. You know, like, in reality, it really made a lot of sense, because some of the things that, um, well, basically, it's very similar to autism. As a matter of fact, there's some specialists out there who say 100% of people who have what I have have autism. And I, I do believe that I probably also should have an autism diagnosis, but I just haven't went and gotten an official diagnosis. Brian and I've talked about that before. <laughs> but yeah. um, I may down the line get one. Um, but, you know, we'll see. So um, one of the things people deal with is social difficulties. I was very social, but I was, um, I guess you would call for lack of a better term right now, off, kind of awkward, kind of in your face social, like, look at me, look at me, because I just didn't know really how to like initiate socially with kids so I could be a little much for some people. Um, and then also I was really, really clumsy. Um, I took a long time to ride bikes, things like that. I took gymnastics because my sister was in gymnastics when I was a kid. And I actually had a gymnastics instructor tell me that a garbage pail could do better gymnastics than I could. 
I was That's nine. Wow. I was That's nine years old. To say. <laughs> oh, isn't that so nice? But I, I was so like clumsy and not coordinated. And one of the funny things that I found doing um, my Google searches is that I guess in like middle school and high school, kids who have my diagnosis can um, have a lot of difficulties with math, with like algebra and things like mm-hmm. that, um, which makes total sense to me now. And I struggled with algebra. Um, I could do any other kind of math all day long. I mean, I could do percentages in my head like nobody's business, but algebra was such a struggle. And so it's just funny little things that kind of connected there for mm-hmm. me. But what didn't was that they said something like half of the people with my diagnosis are intellectually disabled half the people with my diagnosis like aren't um able to be employed and things like that and that's where i would just like shut the book and was like this isn't me like i know you so, have to it, it's a dark road when you start looking down those yeah <laughs> the, yeah the, the trajectory <laughs> for sure well and it's even more complicated than that because i come from a i had a very nice caring supportive mother but I, my father is abusive and um, was abusive and um, had his own difficulties and issues that he was dealing with. He was also an alcoholic. Um, so, and I was the oldest child. So I was, I took the brunt of everything. And um, I was always told how defective I was basically all the time. And so then to find out, like, I really had a diagnosis and needed support that I wasn't getting, like, truly needed the support and didn't get it and was constantly told, why are you the way that you are? I just wasn't ready to, I wasn't ready to unpack all that, you know, I just wasn't. So I waited a long time, um, years, and then in the process, so I got my um, certification in 2014 as a BCABA, and I was already in my master's, and I was like, okay, I'm going to, I wanted to get a different master's than ABA. One, it was, there weren't that many then at that point where I lived, um, but I also just wanted a different perspective. Like I wanted to kind of um, be more multifaceted, I think, and like, so I actually got a master's in sociology. Um, so I was like, yeah, so I was like, I'll get, which actually sociology and, um, behavior analysis really are not as separate as people like to say that they are, they really aren't. Um, I mean, especially now behavior analysis is starting to delve. I think you guys had someone on your episode about like someone that was looking into group research. And I was like, that is sociology. Like basically behavior analysis is looking into sociology and kind of calling it something different, which is fine, but it's sociology. So anyways, I thought in my grand scheme, okay, so I'm going to get my master's then I'm going to finish up my coursework. The employer I had at the time was even paying for my coursework and it'll all be wrapped up in a pretty bow and I'll get my BCBA. Um, And then I went through a terrible divorce with the, um, with a narcissistic, uh, ex-husband that I have now. Um, so I was going through an incredibly terrible divorce and I lost all steam. It took me five years, six years to finish my master's. All I had to finish was my paper. I had finished everything else. Um, I just couldn't do it. I was a single mother of three. Um, my son is also, um, he had a diagnosis of 
at the time Asperger's or Asperger's. Um, yeah. And, um, and so I just had so much I was dealing with and I just being a single mother and then also trying to co-parent with a narcissist, like it's just a road I can't even, I can't even describe to you how difficult that is. So I just didn't have the self-esteem, the drive or the financial resources to finish everything up. So long story short, um, I am now finishing up my BCBA. I had to retake my, all my coursework. I had finished all of it, but the task list had changed. So now oh. I'm redoing it all over again. But you know what? That's not a bad thing because I feel like things have changed so much in the last few years. I'm learning things that I wasn't learning the first time. So, I like um, your outlook. I, That's good. yeah, you know, first I, of all, I, I am so proud of you. Like to the, the, the amount of challenges in the way of like coming back to do that, like, I mean, divorce alone, then like divorce with a narcissist and then yeah. having three kids. Like I, I, I couldn't even imagine. So I just want to tell you, like, I'm really Thank proud you. of you and you should be really proud of yourself. That's amazing. Thank you. Well, so about a year, year and a half, two years ago, I really started being more open about who I was and the fact that I was a neurodivergent individual. And um, it was really COVID, I think, that kind of brought all that out. Um, and also COVID's the reason I finished up my master's and that I kind of like started building. So basically behavioral momentum, right? Yeah. I did one little thing and then I did another little thing and another. And I, I don't know, it lit a spark in me. And I was like, I can be whoever I want to be. And like, you know, and so... Um, I found Brian um, kind of in that process about nine months ago and I started following him and I was just like, oh my gosh, here's a guy who's being so brave about who he is. And here I've been hiding and masking for so long. And um, so it really like made me realize I didn't need to do that anymore. And so I um, messaged him about six or seven months ago now and was just like, hey, I really like what you're doing. Do you think that you would like to work together? And I'm sure it was super awkward, but like. Um, <laughs> Push into the awkward. Sure, Awkward's wonderful. I, Lean in. Yeah, I love that. Uh, awkward is my specialty sometimes. But yeah, so I, um, I just messaged him and he like went with it. So I'm like, you know what? This is so awesome that someone is you know, important to our field is Brian is actually listening to me. And that, I think that's really helped me build some confidence and momentum too. Um, mm -hmm. So here I am. That was really long. Sorry. <laughs> no, I love it because you know what I, I've noticed, um, I'm not, no one can see you, but us, but you're just glowing. Like there's just this like light about you when you're sharing your story and yeah. finding your people and realizing that you don't need to hide and you don't need to mask yeah. and that you know what, like, this is what makes Lara amazing. So like leaning well, into you. that and sharing. And I, I mean, we're going to talk more about what you, your plan is with your podcast and everything, but um, Brian, do you want to tell us a little bit about you so they can, um, yeah, there's a um, lot about you. Um, <laughs> so much, <laughs> so much uh, here, but so, so first let's start with like that connection between me and Lara. Cause I feel like that's really important. Mm -hmm. um, so my attitude is, is, I imposter syndrome is real folks. Just <laughs> talked about that earlier. And I I appreciate that there's a lot of people who see what I do and they're like you're really important to our field and you're an ABA celebrity and all these other things and I'm just like 
yeah, but I don't want to be <laughs> like <laughs> what, what, what I want to be. And so so when Laura reached out to me and, and asked me about this stuff, I was just like, OK, so I can either be like eep or I can do what I love doing best, which is I have a mantra. I've, I've said it for years. I don't know when I came up with it, but we grow together. Mm-hmm. And so so my attitude was. Loris has this wonderful idea. My job, since I have a voice, because people are listening to me, is to elevate her voice. And beautiful. I, I'm I'm trying to do that in so many different ways. And I actually have a lot of, of running projects. And 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 some people don't like being in the limelight. Um I'm I'm the I'm one of those lovely uh vocal out there like um ambivert uh autistics where like i both love being social and extroverted and then i also love being introverted and enjoying enjoying time with myself and i only recently learned the term ambivert and i was just like this is me this is Wait, my I totally life. feel like this is me too i've never heard the ambient but i like there's so much liat's always like you light up when you talk to people but inside i'm like i really just like sitting by myself on the couch like i just night like to be alone sometimes I don't need to talk to people, but I also know that when I am in those situations, I do enjoy myself. And and yeah. based off of the descriptor, and again, this is not necessarily behavior analytic, but it's it's a fun, I look, love looking at definitions and, and trying to understand different perspectives. And when it comes to the, the introvert, extrovert paradigm, ambiverts are basically those people who recharge both socially and by themselves and it switches based off of things that we don't understand yet, but it happens. And I, when I go to conferences, I am energized because I love being around people and I love talking about my special interests and getting excited and stimming out and just having a lot of fun with it. And then also I, I do like alone time and I like being able to go on walks and think and, and consider and kind of live in my head a little bit. And so yeah. Um, so when Laura reached out to me, like, as I, I was just like, this is fantastic. Let's do something. Let's work together. And so this is Laura's brainchild, but I'm here to support and elevate um, and and to help because I eventually want to get to the point where um, me being involved is incidental instead of being a primary participant. But at any rate, a little bit about me. So um, I was diagnosed with nonverbal learning disorder at the age of 14. It turns out that when clinicians don't want to diagnose autistic, uh, at least back in the early 2000s, and they didn't want to do Asperger's, they would typically do the NLD. Um, it's, it's actually really common. I'm reading the book right now, Unmasking Autism, which is a very difficult read because... I am realizing that even as I have been unmasking, I'm still masking. And then so I need to, there's more than I need to work on. And just so y'all know, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, uh, autistic masking is, is not the same as behavior analytic masking, although very similar. Like the masking in behavior analysis is where a stimulus masks access to, or uh, it masks the SD for another stimulus. Is that right? Am I, did I use that right? Yeah, it's like hard um, to get stimulus control. Exactly. So something in the environment's competing. My my favorite example of that, which also was my favorite example of uh, how 
uh, reinforcement is neither good nor bad, but it can be unethical is the scrolling on the phone thing, right? When you're scrolling on the phone and then you catch yourself at 12 o'clock, one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, you're like, what have I been doing so long? The reinforcement contingency is so powerful that it's a mass the SD for, I need to go to bed. I need to sleep. Um, and interestingly, uh, uh, behavior analytic masking, uh, when looking at the definition of, of masking, and I'm still working on modifying my existing definition of autistic masking, uh, plays a role in autistic masking. So consider that. But there's two core characteristics of masking, and that is um, camouflaging, which is where basically we're trying to hide our characteristics that are not typical or abnormal because we're trying to avoid the, the contingencies that come into play for expressing those. And then compensation, which is uh, strategies to overcome any challenges or impairments that might be a result of those individual characteristics in relation to the environment. And so you know that sounds to me exhausting. It is exhausting. Absolutely. It is so exhausting. And, and when it comes to autistic masking, um, or really neurodivergent masking, because it, it so it what is going on is we're looking at this from the perspective of the environment, right? That's what behavior analysts do. This is our deal, is we look at the environment. Okay, so environment is influencing how our behavior uh, influences behavior and, and results in different outcomes. And as it turns out, our environmental attitude in relation to people who are atypical creates disability. Now, there are some things that are truly disabled, like if you were to expect somebody who is an amputee to run, that's, that is a true disability in so much as they can't, right? They need some, some, something to be able to support them. But then when you look at it from the perspective of what is our environment expect and where does this come from and how does the culture influence it? What we consider mentally healthy comes from a combination of Victorian sensibilities and expectations for the upper middle class and, and, and the rich, right? The, and the upper class. So you have to maintain a constant level of calm and anybody who does not fit within that role is somehow savage or unwell. And then you combine that with um, the, the slight cultural evolution that took place post-World War II where you come home, you start your job, you're either, you know, the woman who's working at, at home and taking care of the babies and, and doing all these things and being happy hunky-dory, um, or you're the man who's going to work and coming back. And we, we have some shifts in our culture a little bit going on here, but the baseline expectation is actually unhealthy. So what is considered well even as we've been trying to improve our definitions and, and address these issues is heavily influenced by culture and culture affects environment and um, culture affects phylogeny. So like what we're looking at here is that neurodivergence, if you really want to break it down, we're just people just like everybody else. That's, that's it. But when we're looking at the environment, our what behavior analysts have been doing consistently and still do, depending on uh, where you're working and, and what sort of work you're doing, is we're actually training autistic masking. We're training somebody to 
pare themselves down and force themselves to fit in. And that's exhausting. Um, I'm sorry. I kind of jumped out of, out of the introduction. No, I, I, I love that you're going here because I, I've been hearing this term a lot and I, you know, I was hoping that you were going to bring that up Yeah, because I mean, I, I see it so much in clinics. Like I come from, um, the adult population and there's just so much of that. Keep your hands in your pocket, safe hands. Like I see it when I see people go trips to the grocery store with their clients or whatever. It's like, nope, put that back. Don't touch that. Nope. That's nope. Yep. Can't have that. Like so much of that, like, yeah, jeez, oh, I'm just crow. Like coercion control. Uh-huh. Like, like, yeah. and, and because they have a label, they can't, they can't do what a, a, a big air quotes here, typical peer does. And, um, so going back to my introduction and my history, I think one of the reasons why I've been able to be so successful is because um, my my parents were upset with the school system because of some stuff that happened with a teacher for my older sister. And my older sister is uh, seven or eight years older than me. Um, and I'm one of seven kids. I'm in the top three. <laughs> uh, and, wow. and so my parents opted to homeschool. So my dad worked and my mom homeschooled us. And my parents had jobs on the side to be able to make ends meet because there's a lot of kids. But my dad had a very well-paying job. And so because my exposure to social contingencies was limited and also my exposure to social contingencies when we did interact with homeschool kids was they're also the weird kids. <laughs> so it was a little bit, it was a little bit less punishing and I had a lot of success there, but I still, confidence. yeah. And, but I still encountered punishers in the form of, of church and social outings and things like that. So I definitely still developed the masking, but because of my experiences, um, it led to me being the loud, vocal, slightly obnoxious, but very much lovable, I hope, fingers crossed. Um, totally lovable. <laughs> person and who... Smart. <laughs> <laughs> and And so there's that. And so th- when I went to school, I, I initially went to a traditional liberal arts school, which is not the same as a liberal arts school. It's a little... It was a little bit culty, <laughs> uh, but I learned a lot of good stuff and I was around some pretty cool people. Um, and then because I could not afford the tuition because it was, I think it was uh, 5,000 a semester and there, and I was not eligible for Pell Grants or student loans because they never got accredited. Um, I left there and went to your typical university, Southern Utah University, um, originally planning to get a pre-law degree and, and go to law school. And I took a, a mock law uh, LSAT test and, and did really well on it. So I'm like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. And then um, something happened and I substitute taught for a church class at, at my congregation for with some kids and I just loved it. And so I just went, okay, I want to be a teacher. I changed my mind. I want to be a teacher. Um, and so I changed my degree to um, social science composite, which is history, psychology, philosophy, political science, economics, and geography. Ooh, man. Wow. A lot of fun stuff. All like, I didn't know that there was like a degree to put those all together. I, it, I think it might be u- unique to where I was going to school at. But yeah, I, uh, well, I don't know. It's not unique because the social science composite is one of the hardest praxis tests to pass. But um, 
I passed it. I did really good. I was going to say, you should start a test prep company. <laughs> <laughs> but eh, no, no, my, my, test, yeah. my test prep skills suck. <laughs> uh, my way of pre- test prepping is not a good idea. Uh, it works anyway, for you. That's good though. It works for me, yes. Uh, but um, then my counselor, this is one of the few times a college counselor did something right in my opinion. Uh, he said, you know, if you add one semester, you can have, instead of a major and a minor, you can have two majors and you can major in special education. I was like, cool, cool. <laughs> let's do this. Awesome. Yeah. And like, I, I got, I got exactly one semester's worth of work as a, as a history slash social science composite teacher. And that was an, uh, after, uh, an evening class that was a remedial course to help kids catch up who were missing credits. And I had a lot of fun with that, but I've been a special ed teacher um, basically from that point forward. Um, and I, and I think that as a behavior analyst, I still am a special ed teacher. I'm just a special ed teacher who actually gets funding and support, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is saying a lot because special and ed I, first I wants to be called last wants to be funded and first wants to have funding. Special Paul, ed well, teachers. I think they should all have like, I mean, because I was a special ed teacher too. Like the training yeah. that I have now as a behavior analyst, like at least some level of that training. You oh, know, yeah. To, to, like for effective teaching. Like when I think about, you know, they put you in this classroom, even if you've learned about like RTI or any of these things, it's like, mm-hmm. okay, but like when it comes to actually teaching, how are you going to do that? Well, and like the two-ish years of being a special ed teacher and working on my degree slash wrapping it up um, were the best years out of the seven years I taught as a special ed teacher because I had I had all the wonderful things that special that my neurotype and my personality brought to the brought to the table with regards to what that did. The trick was treat them like people. <laughs> Um, (laughs) shocker, I know. Uh, but then I also had, um, the behavior analytic perspective. And so like, I, I love this. I love this brag. I love this flex, but, um, I was the behavior special education teacher for Canyon View middle school for five years. And at the beginning of the third year, moving forward, I had 100% inclusion. Wow. That's hot. And, and, and my kids thrived. They, they felt included and participated. Uh, and, and what's more, um, I created this beautiful little microcosm. Like my main intervention was lunchtime guys. (laughs) Like my main intervention was like, yes, I did all my little study halls and all this other little things on the side. And I supported the kids. But my main thing was during lunchtime when that lousy, loud ass, Mm-hmm. lunchroom was going on any kid not my special ed kids my special ed kids were definitely prioritized but any kid could come into my classroom and have lunch in there and it turned into this wonderful place where we practiced social skills where we did conflict resolution where the kids learned how to connect with each other it was just mind-blowingly wonderful and i loved it and if i could go back and not have to deal with administrators <laughs> Yeah, right. I would do it in a heartbeat. I would. Um I because love because it was wonderful. That's what we need is is looking at it from an environmental perspective. And so when I came into behavior analysis, my experience was not the 
DTT, Lovasian, you sit at the table and you do this robotic way. It was the opposite. So then as I'm working with these kids at 25, I'm like, oh my gosh, these kids are my life. This is my experiences. So I went out and I um, talked with a friend and, and he got me uh, uh, some access to some assessment documents and, and I completed all of them. And I, and I, Found my old IEP. I was one of the, uh, I was amongst the first to have an IEP and my old diagnostic paperwork and everything. And I went to my doctor and I said, "Hey, doc, I think I'm autistic. Here's all my stuff." And he looks at all of it and he goes, "Cool, okay." And I was like, "All right, what do I need to do?" And he's like, "You did it." Oh, you had already done the work. <laughs> I did all the work. Like I, I mm-hmm. went through and did all everything. The medical records and yep, the, the, the whole nine yards. And so he's like, all right, well, uh, here we go. Autism spectrum disorder. You did your own assessment. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, I also made sure that my, um, my friend who was a clinical is a counseling psychologist who was at the time a school psychologist reviewed everything and made sure it was. So I had a professional with the diagnostic experience mm-hmm. review um, and make sure that it was all hunky dory but um yeah that so since about 25 i can't remember the exact age of course this is all bleh, but i i knew i was autistic and i knew what was wrong with me except that it wasn't something that was wrong with wrong, me when i yeah. when i when i read the book neurotribes that was the thing that that led to me growing and understanding that oh wait it, okay this is the neurodiverse perspective all right um and there's a lot of there's a lot of emotion um, bound up in behavior analysis and autism and autism services. And mm-hmm. I, I will tell you this. I, I don't think there's a single person who's aware of who I am, who is not aware that I don't like Lovas. Right. <laughs> um, but I, I want to make sure to go on record with this because somehow people and granted it's my fault for not communicating more clearly but people have the impression that i hate lovas i don't hate him i think that he just like everybody else was a product of his environment Mm -hmm. and that he asked questions and had assumptions and made those assumptions and those influenced how he did things i do hate what he did Mm-hmm. I do hate the harm that has been caused. I do dislike very strongly, and hate is the right word, I think, for this, the culture that has come from his work. I hate all of that. But mm-hmm. he is a person. He was a person, I should say. And we are people. And we operate within our environments. And our environments influence our behavior. And so a lot of times when I'm hearing folks who are just like, well, you're not very behavior analytic, I'm like, have you talked to me? <laughs> <laughs> like, I can tell you are. <laughs> I, I nerd the hell out on this stuff. I stim when I get excited about behavior analytics stuff because it's fun and it it provides a view of the world that makes sense and totally. that is consistent. Um, the problem that I see with behavior analysis is that we have this subculture of supremacy. Okay, and, and I'm trying to be very careful here because I don't want to shut people off. I'm not saying white supremacy or any other type of... Uh, I'm saying the above that is this concept of supremacy that we're here to save people. Right. And yet, as a teacher, I wasn't there to save my kids. I was there to teach them mm-hmm. and to advocate for them and to be their ally and to be their ambassador 
And that's what behavior analysts need to be. We need to, one, we need to stop being technology deliverers. Mm-hmm. Okay. Lovas developed the technology and then now we replicate it. And, and most of our training goes into, oh yeah, this is how you do it. And it's like, yeah, we individualize, but not really. Right. Right. Um, so, so we need to stop being technology deliverers and go back to being actual scientists, which means that we pull up our sleeves and we do the hard work. We walk in with the curiosity, uh, sorry, the eyes of a toddler and the curiosity of a scientist. That's what we need to have. I love that. Right. Uh, so we, again. <laughs> I said it before, I'll say it again, uh, <laughs> eyes of a toddler and the curiosity of scientists, but more importantly, we need to take a step back from this strange concept that we're clinicians. Yes, we are, but we need to, and start pushing into we're scientists teachers. That's what we really are. We, because of the way that the environment has influenced things, we're seen as medical professionals. Mm-hmm. Because of the whole insurance world and everything? Yeah, insurance influences how we do things. But we're not. Yeah, I agree. Now, now we have... This is what I love to do because I love taking all this fun information and pull it together. So we we have a lot in common with neurologists. Like, we don't have the assessment and diagnostic tools of neurologists. But when you look at how neurology explains learning, you're seeing that what we're doing with reinforcement contingencies and building in variable rate reinforcement, all this other stuff and, and, and making it strengthening the behaviors over time. What you're, what you actually are seeing is we're being neurologists, but a teacher is also a neurologist because what they're doing is they're training neural pathways. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's true. Yeah. So, so you're, uh, our job is to be a science of description, not explanation. That's the big difference between neurology and behavior analysis. Experimental analysis does go into explanation a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. But our job is to describe what we see and then use let the data tell the story of how we shape the behavior. But in order for us to be truly ethical, sorry, I'm, I'm getting a little preachy here, but... <laughs> I get excited about it. Um, in order for us to be ethical, then we also need to realize that there's a lot that we don't know. And Absolutely. in our field, we have this saying, and somebody else pointed this out to me. I can't remember who. I'm so sorry. So this is not my original thought. But in our field, we say we rule out medical. But We don't rule out medical. But, the but medical the, professions rule it out, but I know what you mean, right? But, but the ethics code says account for. The, the, the ethics code says we account for medical and then we make sure that we're adjusting accordingly. And yet a lot of what we're doing when we're talking about neurodivergent populations is we're working with people who might have uh, n- not only autism spectrum disorder, which is a DSM diagnosis, mm-hmm. right? We're not medical professionals. I don't understand why we're so worried about DSM diagnoses, except it to as how it informs preferences. Right. But we have a lot of co-occurring conditions along with this. So why are we ruling out when the reality is, is the majority of the populations that we're working with right now as behavior analysts have co-occurring medical conditions? You know what? Mm-hmm. I'm autistic and ADHD, also known as turbo autism. <laughs> I, I'm also half deaf and I have dysgraphia. I've been diagnosed with it. 
which means I have learning challenges, uh, reading challenges. So I do a lot of listening to audiobooks. Now, I've done a lot of masking. And also, on top of that, I've also done a lot of skill acquisition. And there's a little combination of both. Um, but what, what I'm trying to do when I'm working with my kids is try to have that attitude of what's my objective? What's my goal? And that's what this, this panel and podcast through our eyes is all about is it's trying to break down and look at all the different interventions from the truly socially valid lens. We're trying to examine and be like, okay, what is this that is social, that hits true social validity, not social validity of uh, I'm making it so it's less inconvenient for the parents or the people in the community, right? Because that the majority of the studies that I've read that actually account for social validity, they, they're talking about the impact towards the community, not the individual. Okay, so that's exactly what I wanted to go, is that the panel that you and the, the podcast that you and Lara are um, starting. So I want to tell us like your, your baby and your vision of this podcast. I know you started a little bit, uh, Brian, but Lara, what is your, I know he said it's your baby. So tell us. Sure. Okay. Um, so uh, basically we are just wanting to um, elevate. We want to elevate voices. And I, I think the reason that I kind of, even came up with this idea is one, I love the work that Brian was doing, but I also hadn't seen anything like, um, so I hadn't really seen anything out there of um, people really talking about how to do specific strategies um, in ways that are neurodiverse affirming. So like, you know, you just keep hearing one thing or another, like, oh, we can't physically prompt anymore or, you know, and the thing is, is that I think like what's happening is sometimes there's these like extremes, like people are against ex um, escape extinction, where it's, it's not escape extinction that's the problem, it's how it's applied, right? And so I think like if we actually, my idea was if we have people on, there's multiple reasons why this could be an amazing thing. One, we can really elevate voices and also have people share experiences. And the thing is, is that like, so as a neurodivergent individual, my experiences aren't the same as the next neurodivergent individual, but I still maybe have some similarities with them or some sense of what they're experiencing, right? And so I think it would be fantastic. And especially because some of the people we work with are non-vocal, right? They can't tell us what they're experiencing. So of course, I'm not experiencing what my non-vocal client is verbatim, but I may be able to give a window into something that they're experiencing that they're not able to vocalize. And so I think it would be amazing to be able to elevate those voices, but also be able to specifically look at different strategies in our field that have become, you know, ones that have become pretty controversial, especially. And, um, and really say, okay, it's not that we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's that like, look, let's look at what works and what really doesn't work or what really could potentially be harmful, but what really isn't harmful, you know? And so I just think it would be really great because I think right now a lot of behavior analysts are very confused. I'm, I myself 
and very confused about certain things like, you know, oh, am I allowed to use this term anymore? I mean, think, I think we're all experiencing that, you know, like yeah. we don't want to, um, we want to do the right thing. And, and I fully believe that everyone that's in our field is in it, came into it for the right reason, right? I believe that they wanted to help people. I think that what is most harmful, and and this was another reason I think that having a panel series of neurodivergent individuals would be so great, is we've got to get rid of the medical model of autism. We are, we're not gonna recover from autism. It's not something that you should or could recover from, you know? And I'd like to think that we have made progress and that we are definitely um, not still in that era of, um, you know, that we were, I hate to say it, but like the Jenny McCarthy era, I'd like to think that we're past that, <laughs> but, but there's still mm. a lot of people out there that talk about autism from a very, as especially me being in the middle of Missouri, from a very medical perspective. And so I think that maybe elevating these voices through a panel series would be able to show people that, you know, it's not something you need to recover from. You can have a full, amazing life and still be neurodivergent. But also, yeah. I know there's other people out there like me who were walking around with this di with some diagnosis, whether it be autism or whether it be ADHD or whatever it is, and they're afraid to be who they really are. And so if we could reach anyone and make them not experience the pain that I put myself through for a good, I don't know, 10 years, you know, that would be amazing because I didn't feel like I could be myself truly, truly, truly until I saw Brian's stuff. And so wow. that's kind of my reasoning. And, and to go along with that, like we're behavior analysts, behavior analysts manipulate the environment, not the person, right? And we can change culture. We do change culture. We have changed culture. Like now the with the ABA mandate that's in all 50 states, that culture has been changed. So how do we continue changing that culture in a way that's affirming to everyone? Now, that doesn't mean no struggle. That doesn't mean we never struggle ever again. That, look, struggles are part of life. Like you come out of you when you come out of the womb, you're struggling. You're and it's it it's just built in. But like does that mean we have to push into a system that burns people out, that harms people? Or can we do what we do best, which is behavior analysts alter the environment and we shape culture? And if we shape culture and we shape the environment to the point that we change things for the better, then the baseline keeps going up for the total experience. And that's one of the reasons why when we're talking about civil rights, there's a lot of overlap between racial justice, gender justice, uh, disability rights justice, all of these different things, they interact and play together. And so it's like, no, I cannot, I cannot speak for the experiences of somebody who is black and autistic and genderqueer. I can't. That's why that pan that panel is there. We want to just going to say that. That's why the panel. Will be that's there. why the panel's there, and that's why we're utilizing what um, I don't know if you've heard of it, the CAR model, um, community action research model. No, I have not. 
um, which the entire objective is to get engagement with the community. And that's what behavior analysis needs to do better. We're fantastic at single sub subject case design. We're so good at it. We're really good at that. But you know what we're not so good at? Accepting that single subject case design is not the only way of approaching things. That it and has limitations. It has limitations. And mm -hmm. um, we're also really bad at, under, at learning from narrative, from lived experiences, which is data. Totally. Like just because it's not is easily quantifiable does not mean you can't learn from it. And, and overcome and uh, challenges uh, in relation to research and supports and services that we provide. Um, and so when Laura brought this to me, I was just like, yes, all the yes, please. Um, because this is what we need to do. We need to look at the hard things. So some of the topics, I have a little spreadsheet up that where, where we talked about this. The, our first panel is going to be on social validity where we're going to examine, examine that. But some of the broader topics and the panelists will be a part of deciding what we're going to talk about next is we'll be reviewing and tackling topics like potty training, cooperative play, appropriate play, eye contact, stereotypy, um, instructional control programs, food, food interventions, social skills groups, all those different things. And then we're even going to dive even deeper depending on where, where the panelists want to go with this into things like prompting, DTT, NET, uh, looking at assessments like the early Denver model, VB map, peak, uh, pivotal response training, uh, all these different things. And the, what we're what we do or will be doing, I suppose, because it hasn't been published yet or, or held yet, is we gather articles, all panelists read, they're all professionals. They're, they're all a, a, a part of this helping community that, that we're a part of. Maybe not all of them are behavior analysts, but they all have uh, training and understanding. And then they're, the majority of them are neurodivergent autistic. Um, and we have a discussion. And in this discussion, disagreements are allowed. There need to be. Have to be. There's no learning. Exactly. If everyone's agreeing on the same exact thing, what's the point? Exactly. Uh, it, it, in that case, it's just an echo chamber. Yeah. Um, and so we're going to have those hard discussions. And and um, Laura and I are going to be moderators. Mm -hmm. We're not going to be a part of that panel discussion in, except to ask clarifying questions and, and those sorts of things. Because we need to make it so that our field is consistent in checking for social validity. We have to. Mm -hmm. You can't just say, oh, well, yeah, we checked with the stakeholders. Right. And I asked three, three, three to 10 questions to, to my kid and never did follow up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, that's not social yeah. validity. <laughs> no, that's huge. I feel like this is going to really benefit the field, the culture, and more importantly, our clients, like their lives and, um, I'm sure both of you being neurodivergent are probably the best friggin' therapists in the world to your clients. And I think that you offer them something Hopefully. so special. Yeah. No, I just hearing you both talk, I'm like, I want them as my BCBA. Like, <laughs> if I'm like a brother with autism or someone like Liat has, like we always say like, you can, you can tell who you'd want working with like your family member. Um, just because we're neurodivergent doesn't mean we can't cause harm. True. 
I, I want to, I, I want to make sure that that's put out there. Like, um, you know what, just yesterday I caught myself doing something and I, and I'm, and I'm learning and I'm still growing. And I was just like, Oh my gosh, I'm doing that. Nope. I need to fix that. Okay. Let's fix it. I train my staff, make sure that we're addressing it, make sure that we're, uh, in, encouraging, um, respecting the autonomy of the individual, making sure that we're not trained little robots where we're teaching people skills that they can use if they choose to use them. And, and that's the important factor there is that consent portion. Um, but yeah, so just because I'm neurodivergent or autistic doesn't doesn't give me a free pass. And and I appreciate you sharing that. I, I want to make sure it's very clear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, when when Laura Laura, when's the when's the first one that we're Everyone's planning on? Everyone's on the edge of their seat. <laughs> oh, um, it's supposed to be October 10th. Okay. So um, there's going to be. I Brian may have already touched on this, but there's going to be a live portion so there will be live on october 10th but then you would be able to view it afterwards um i'm not good with all the details on all of that i'm a little hazy with what that's exactly going to look like but um it will be live uh brian is it going to be through it'll be through the mindful behavior yeah so we're working with mindful behavior llc um they'll Mm -hmm. be hosting the live event um and we're still working out the details on how the the panel will be accessible, but um, full disclosure, uh, at the beginning, it mentioned that I was a member at large for the open ed um, uh, special interest group. I'm actually the president elect now. So that, that, that's wow. an update. <laughs> but, wow. uh, Brian. Thank you. Another uh, flex. I like this. <laughs> but, He's going to need like, a bigger oh. plate. I know what is going on. <laughs> but the, the point being that like we're passionate about open education. And so we want to make this open access, like to, to get CEUs will cost and to participate in the live event will cost whether you're doing CEUs or not, because um, the, the money is going to go uh, with exception of hosting costs and making sure that we can continue doing this. The majority of it's going to the panelists. Um, and we'll, we'll have a values-based contribution along with the minimum. So that way, if somebody wants to give more, they can. Um, but the, the, the goal is to make it so that access to at least the audio of the panel is available through a podcast type format. Um, still working out the, the, the kinks in that particular one, but, um, the, the plan is let's make this successful. Let's make it so that people can learn because if learning is caught behind a paywall, are you actually disseminating or are you just profiting? And yeah, you can disseminate and profit. Yes, I know it's possible, but like, <laughs> let's, let's let's try to address these inequalities and alter the environment. And dissemination means we need to get this information out there. And also having a place where, like you had kind of alluded to this or said earlier, like we're all kind of in this place where what is right and what is not, and we don't want to cause harm. It's not a hope. I don't think anyone's true intentions, but having this place of learning and disagreements and um it's just going to be so I can't wait to come I mean I just want to like learn and I just thank you both for I mean Laura I'm, I'm glad happy that you, you guys came together I was gonna say I'm really like, happy you reached out like you met your match yeah, yeah. you know 
I'm not good at that, but I will tell you the few times that I've actually taken a chance in life have been like, I, I don't know why I'm not good at it because really it's, it's led to like being highly reinforced, but for whatever reason, um, Imposter syndrome. <laughs> yeah, I I'm not good at like taking chances, but every time I do, it seems to work out pretty pretty well. So trust the contingencies, um, Laura. I, I just yeah, I just learned a, for sure. I, I learned a new thing, uh, Laura. I think I, I think I have a theory why you you struggle with taking chances, why we all struggle with it. Um, so there's a theory called disequilibrium theory, um, which uh, talks about uh, basically the the simplified boiled down thing is is that homeostasis is a primary reinforcer. So that like being so, balanced. And so being balanced outside. and yeah, going outside your comfort zone can be punishing. Um, now it can also be very rewarding, right? But um, disequilibrium theory is proposing that homeostasis can be both a primary and second and uh, conditioned reinforcer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's a big deal. So, that's you know, huge. yeah. Um, I want to throw this out there real quick before we wrap up because yeah. uh, I want to leave folks with something more than just wait for it. Because, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, dissemination, right? You want a little uh, foreplay. All right, you can say um, <laughs> but, but, like, if, if you're, before you go to this panel, and even when you're at this panel, like, a very good heuristic, a good measure of trying to identify, like, whether what we're doing is causing harm or not is... In addition to educating yourself and taking into account the things that and, and, and always expanding your understanding is, is this assent based or not? Is is the individual assenting? Now, assenting is um, similar to it's a, a synonym of consent, but a child can't consent. That's a legal term, but a child can assent and anybody can give assent and once you're above a certain age, then you can indeed give consent. But that's what assenting means. Um, so I'm going to throw this out here, and it's going to probably blow some people's minds, and somebody might feel a little angry about this. But, you know, the recent controversy around contingent electric skin shock? It can be used ethically. I've heard of one instance, only one so far, where somebody asked for contingent electric skin shot to be utilized to help them address a behavior that they were struggling with. That is the situation. They assented. He asked for it. He wanted it. And I'm not saying he asked for it as in you asked for it. It's like he said, I understand the risks. I understand the potential harm that could be taking place here. And I believe that it is worth it. I'm really happy that you pointed that out. Because something I did not know, and it makes a lot of sense with the ascent part that you just yeah talked about. And and so if we can, if it's a situation where ascent cannot be given, we cannot verify that ascent is given. Then then we go into the kind of that ethical checklist of okay, well, with, if not intervening were to happen, then would this put this somebody else's life at risk? This happens when it comes to medical, like for example. Um, if someone is suicidal and they can be given drugs to be able to help them get out of that place because when they're in their right mind. Now, there's some debate there in relation to that, but like there are cases where you can bypass that 
also if somebody is experiencing like medical trauma in relation to heart attack or bleeding or something like that and there's no dnr um in place uh, do not resuscitate sorry uh, which is a legal document then uh it is our duty to try to intervene and and try to address so that's where ethics comes in if ethics was easy we wouldn't have an entire field dedicated to ethics right um but yeah if you if you can verify um and and get that assent and it's clear then it's less likely to be unethical and then then we have a lot of other things that are going on as well but long and short we're really excited for this panel and podcast and i'm really grateful for laura for including me thank you thank you Thank you both for coming on today. You're wonderful human beings. It was amazing to meet you. Everyone has to go check it out. Check it out. All the information is going to be in our show notes. Yep. And when this episode comes out, it it should be out. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you you guys so much. Amazing, amazing to see you. Thank you. All right. Of course, you know where to find us. You can find us on Instagram, Behavior Bitches Podcast, on Facebook, Behavior Bitches podcast on our website, behaviorbitches.com. Go ahead, leave us a message if you want to come on or you have someone else who wants to come on and has something cool to share. The weirder, the better. I'm all into weird. And that's all we have for you today. So as always, I love you. Mean it. Hey guys, it's Liat and Casey. We just want to take a second to let you know that if you're thinking of being a millennial like us and starting your own podcast, there is a way. You can do your show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard because guess what? We don't know shit with that. But we have Alan at Pretty Easy Podcast who helped us get started. He records our shows. He posts them. He adds awesome, awesome music and cool shit when we don't even know what he's doing. He sends us teaser episodes. He does it all. We just sit here and friggin' talk. We shoot the shit and you can record from home, your office, the park, a bathroom stall at work. It doesn't matter. He provides the complete podcast studio. All you need is a microphone and you're good. Alan caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. He has been super flexible with our schedule. Whenever we need him, we go to Google Calendar. We just book him and he does all the hard work. It's like so incredibly easy. That's why it's probably called Pretty Easy Podcast. So be heard and have some fun podcasting like us. Go to prettyeasypodcast.com today.